The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Uh, today's scripture reading is in John 10, 22 to 31. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of, the, out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Thanks, Josh. You guys can have a seat. Well, this morning, as Josh read, we get to pick back up in the Gospel of John. We get to continue looking at Christ. And we are going to be focusing on the subject of faith. Now, faith is at the center of our salvation, is at the center of the gospel. We got to look at that last week as we got to um, highlight the Reformation. It makes me think of Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which we all know well. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We talk a lot about faith, but at times we actually might not define it down to its simplest of terms. And so as I've been thinking about faith this week, as I've been thinking about unpacking this passage, I just did a, uh, some quick search for what is faith, just answering just that, that basic question. And I first went to just a basic dictionary, like Webster's, if you will, and faith says this, it's the complete trust or confidence in someone or something. I have faith that the stage is not going to fall. I, you have faith that that chair is going to hold you up. We have basic faith that people are going to stay in their own lanes on the road. Otherwise, we would not drive. But we could also go to the Bible as it describes faith. It actually gives a very clear, very beautiful description of faith. And it took me to Hebrews 11.1. 1. It says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. But then I could say, well, what's the Reformed understanding of faith? As I'm trying to just um, identify what is this answer to what is faith. Well, the Reformed understanding of faith said this. It says that church, that in church's historic understanding of saving faith contains three elements. It contains facts, it contains the comprehension of facts, and it, be, and it contains the trusting of the facts. So hearing, understanding, and trusting. Then, as I was thinking about faith, I was like, wait a second, our confession the London Baptist Confession, the confession that we hold to here and that so many other churches hold to, describes faith. This is in chapter 14. And so if you want to get down to even more detailed understanding of what is faith, it says this. This is the first paragraph of chapter 14 of the London Baptist Confession. Here's what it, here's what it says. The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts, is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also, by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means adopted of God, appointed of God, to the increase and the strengthening of that faith. Now, I know that's a lot of details that I just shared with you, starting with the most simplest of terms down to the most complex of terms with our confession. But after I started looking at what is faith, I had an even broader question, an even deeper question, if you will. 
come some see something and they believe it and others don't? How come some people have faith and others don't? Some of you here today, this question hits deep at your heart because you have somebody in your mind that you desperately want them to see the faith that you have in Christ and also have that same faith. I mean, this could be a loved one, this could be a child, this could be a parent, this could be a spouse, this could be a friend, this could be a coworker, somebody that's on your heart and you're, you're longing for the Lord, open their eyes. Why can they not see Christ as the glorious Savior that he is? Why do they see Christ and view him as just some other guy? Why, or rather how, can they not see it? Which leads us to the deepest of all questions. Why doesn't everyone have faith? How can some hear? How can some even understand but not trust? Why does one person see something and trust in it and the other person sees the exact same thing and turns the other direction? This takes us to our passage today because we're going to be dealing with these questions as we jump into this passage. So I'm going to put that question on hold. Why do some hear and some understand but not trust? And, and we're going to jump into this passage and look at some of the, the, the details of it, and we're going to come back to that. This passage is following after the Good Shepherd. It uses similar language as the Good Shepherd, like if you see in verses 26 and 27, it says that, you know, some people uh, hear, or it, it says, you do not believe me because you are not among my sheep. So it's hearkening back to this illustration that Jesus got, just got done using about the good shepherd. But some time has elapsed. Actually, about two months has elapsed. You see, chapter 10, up through chapter 10, up through the good shepherd, all of this took place from chapter 7 through 10 at the Feast of Booths. We talked a lot about that. Well, the Feast of Booths takes place at the beginning of October, somewhere around October 9th through the 13th, somewhere in there. Well, in our reading today, it says, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter. And the Feast of Dedication was about two months prior. And I just want to describe the change in scene. Because the Feast of Dedication was a really important feast to the nation of Israel. It was an exciting feast to the nation of Israel, one actually that still stands today. The Feast of Dedication, if you were to go back into the Old Testament and look for like, okay, where does this feast come from? You wouldn't find it. Like the Feast of the Tabernacles you'd find, the Feast of Booths you'd find, the Passover you'd find. But the Feast of Dedication, the Old Testament says nothing about it. And that's because this feast uh, arose during the intertestamental period. And what that means is that there's a silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, about 400 and something years where nothing happens. And then it awakens, that silence is broken uh, with Mary and Joseph and Jesus being born. Well, during the intertestamental period, there became a revolt in Jerusalem. And specifically, it was at, at 167 BC, the um, uh, Assyrians came in and they conquered Jerusalem. Now, if you're going through the, if you're listening along with the uh, series of redemption story that we're looking at, it's on, it's, a, it's a via video, you'll, you'll know that in the major and minor prophets, Israel got conquered all the time. Well, this was another one of these moments where, where Israel was in Jerusalem, but the Assyrians came in and they took control of it. And when they took control of Jerusalem, they uh, outlawed all religious worship of God. And even more than that, they wanted to shame God because they walked into the new temple that had been built uh, and 
they tore down the altar of God and they placed in its place an altar to their pagan gods. And they even outlawed all of the reading and all of the, uh, all the, the presence of the Hebrew scriptures if you are caught with any part of the Hebrew Bible, even if it was a small chunk. It was a capital offense punishable by death. And so imagine in your city where it's supposed to be the safe place for you to worship God, uh, they no longer had that. During this period, many of the Jews revolted, and they actually are credited with developing the fine art of guerrilla warfare. And over the course of several years, they amassed an army, a guerrilla warfare army, and they pushed out the Assyrians, and there was one individual by the name of Judas Maccabeus, that was used by God to gather this army and to kick out the Assyrians from, uh, f- from Jerusalem, and it's known as the Maccabean Revolt. Now, this revolt was over at the end of the year, and there was a reconsecration of the temple after they took the pagan altar down, after they brought the Hebrew Bible back, and on the 25th of uh, Kesvil, I don't speak Hebrew, I think that's how you say that, which is December 25th, the temple was reconsecrated. And since then, since 167 BC, for 200 years at this time, the nation of Israel would gather together for the Feast of Dedication. But they would gather in a different manner than the Feast of Booths. You see, the Feast of Booths was a public celebration. It was a public ceremony. They would walk through the streets together remembering what God did for them in Egypt or in in the wilderness. The Feast of Dedication was a private ceremony. They would gather in their homes and they would light lamps together to celebrate God's faithfulness and being able to have this revolt. And so uh, um, along with the Feast of Dedication, it's also known as the Feast of Lights. And you know it today, you hear about it today as Hanukkah. So this is the time period that's taking place. Jesus is once again in Jerusalem and he's walking around the temple. And these two months had passed But the angst for Jesus had not gone away. This frustration that the Jews had for Jesus walking around had not gone away. And we see here in this moment, Jesus is once again put on trial. And it's not by the religious leaders as we've seen in the Feast of Booths. It's by the Jews. We can see in verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said, how long will you keep us in suspense? You know, it's interesting. This time is, is different than all of the other times, and here's why it's different. It's the last time in the Gospel of John when we are going to see Jesus put on trial by the crowds. It's the last time because from here, starting in chapter 11, Jesus, in, in the way that John is telling this gospel, is going to be focusing in on, on his disciples. He's going to go kind of internally. He's going to build up the community around him. We're going to get the, the upper room discourse and get to spend months in that. And there's just the beautiful pictures there. But this is the last time where John highlights for us the trials that Jesus went through. But it's interesting how John, as he's laying out this gospel, how he offers us the trials of Jesus. In the synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus' trial scene is portrayed by Jesus going before the Sanhedrin in like Mark 14 and Luke 22. At the end of his ministry, there was this time when the Sanhedrin called him in and had very much like an official trial that was put forward of, Jesus, you've said this, that, and the other thing. Is this actually true? And those gospels portrayed it and, and, and highlighted the difference between Jesus and the 
religious leaders in that format, but John wants to do something different. You see, John's trial motif turns the notion of a trial on its head by focusing not on Jesus' guilt, which is what the Sanhedrin was doing. We think you're guilty, prove us different. Instead, it shows the Jews' culpability by rejecting their Messiah, despite the ample evidence that was put forward against it. So once again, or rather this last time, we get to see this trial, if you will, and here's what I love about this passage. It's the clearest of them all. And I think it's the clearest of, of them all between the crowds and Jesus because the crowds are most desperate. I mean, just listen again to verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. There's a lot of emotion wrapped up in this question. And this is actually one of these verses that um, commentators and, and Bible scholars uh, kind of disagree with how to best translate it. Not that th it, it, this is what's portrayed, but it's hard to express the emotion behind it. Other translations say this, how long are you gonna keep us guessing? Or, or how long are you gonna keep us in doubt? Or the best one, and I think the one that's closest to this, how long are you going to annoy us? Christ, tell us who you, or Jesus, if you're the Christ, tell us who you are. Here's why I think that this is the closest. The language here is an annoyance down to their very souls. Just consider what Jesus has done for the religious, political, national, uh, just state of things. Just the turmoil that everyone is in since this guy showed up two years ago. They were happy. They all had the common enemy, Rome, they knew what to do, apply the laws, they had, the, they had their leaders, the Pharisees, their life, they had been able to iron everything out. And since Jesus showed up, he's turning everything on its head. The weak are the ones that are blessed, it's the religious leaders who are being cursed. Jesus is now saying, if you're going to follow, if, if you want the kingdom of God, you got to follow me and not the kingdom of man. I mean, they've turned everything on its head. And I think the frustration of these last two and a half years is coming out and they're like, listen, Tell us who you are. But consider the rumors that are swirling around. I mean, you've got one guy standing on the street corner saying, well, you know what? I was part of that wedding when Jesus turned water into wine. And let me tell you, it was the best stuff I ever had. But somebody else goes, no, wait a second, wait a second. I heard Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors. And if he's a holy man, he would not get close to sinners and tax collectors. Or somebody else is saying, wait a second, hang on, hold up, hold up. I was there with John when John said that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but I was also there when Jesus and his disciples were walking through the field and they broke the Sabbath, which we know they can't do because they rolled the heads of grain in their hand and they were eating it because they were hungry. I'm not so sure who this is. I mean, everybody is just like, Jesus, can you please just tell me who you are? And it makes me think as we're setting up this whole scene of a very famous quote, I'm gonna probably say it a couple of times, so I'll give credit to it now. It's the Josh McDowell quote. It says, some people call Jesus a liar, others people call Jesus a lunatic, but still more believe that he is Lord. And so they're at this point where they're like, can we just stop playing games? We're at the end of our rope. We are done. Can you please just tell us who you are? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. But here's the thing. I think the question is coming at Jesus, not because they're like, I want to believe in you. No, 
I think it's coming at Jesus because they're like, I want the, unamb- the unambiguous statements to be over. I, we want to finally be able to just end this thing. And so they're seeking not for clarity in order to worship, but rather to restrain him. And so in order to obtain an unambiguous statement that, that would provide them the adequate basis for their attack and for their imprisonment and, and for their killing of Jesus, that's what they're looking at. If you just tell us plainly, we can write it on the statement, we can present it to the people, and we can finally have you done with. But look how Jesus answers them. It's a very simple question. Jesus does this in his Gospels all the time. He's, he's constantly taking a, what, a perceivably straightforward question and flipping it on its head. But look what he says. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe me because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You know, it would be a very simple statement, a true statement, for Jesus to say, I'm the Messiah. That's who I am. I'm the Messiah. But he doesn't say it. In fact, what's interesting is that Jesus never publicly and explicitly declares himself to be the Messiah. He does privately, like with the Samaritan woman. He, he will with his disciples. But publicly, he never says, I'm the Messiah. He does the works of the Messiah. He does the deeds of the Messiah. He says the words of the Messiah. But he will never say, I am the Messiah. And you've got to ask the question, why? It's so easy. It would be so easy for Jesus to go, okay, you need it straightforward. I'm the Messiah. There you go. You've been waiting for me to say it. But he does it. And why? I think it's this. They would have misunderstood it. In their minds, when the Jews heard Messiah They thought of a political and a military leader. When the Jews heard the Messiah, they thought, oh, we're going to be freed from Rome. They had that image of this new David is going to come and kill this new Goliath. They thought the greater, stronger Judas Maccabeus has come and we're going to conquer the world once again. Jesus is going to come, the Messiah is going to come, and we are going to conquer all these people that we hate. They thought the Messiah was going to come in strength. So if Jesus said that I was the Messiah, they were going to start ushering him towards this earthly throne. Oh, well, then you need to to lead this revolt against the Roman Empire and free us once again. But that's not what Jesus' words and actions were pointing to. This statement that he says, I told you and you did not believe me, harkens back to how this gospel started. I think we're at the heart of it here when John is describing for us and what really why he's gone about uh, listing this gospel the way that he has. Because just remember how clearly he described who Jesus was in the prelude of this gospel. Just, just turn to John 1 again. We're going to just read this once again to remind us of this beautiful statement in, in, case you're, in case you forget who is this Jesus. I mean, this is how John started this thing. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, Christ, was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
Now, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe in him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was the light of the world, and the Lord was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive them. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I mean, we looked at that over a year ago. Just consider laying over the first 13, the first 13 verses of this gospel with the good shepherd analogy and, and, and parable and even this scene here. He came to the world, but the world did not know him. He came as light into a dark place, and yet the darkness uh, rejected him, did not recognize him. And we see this, Jesus, why? They're asking, tell us plainly, and Jesus is going, I told you, and you did not believe me. And how did he tell them? Well, he told them through his deeds and his words. Look what I've done. Look who's been healed. Look at the words that I have given you. Look at the sermons that I have preached. Look at the declarations that, that you have received and you question who I am. Now you might go, but that's not enough. And yet that's the very basis of this entire gospel. Think about the purpose statement once again of the gospel of John. John 20, 31. These are written, these stories, these parables, these words, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Jesus is not going to let these people off the hook. He's saying, listen, the stories that you have lived through, the deeds that you've seen me do, the miracles that you've experienced, the teachings that you've heard, all plainly declare that I am the Christ. So I'll go back to that question I started with. Why then do some people, when they hear him call, they consider him a liar and a lunatic? But others go, oh, that's my shepherd calling. He's Lord. Well, the answer to that is because they're not among the sheep. Verse 26 and 27 is not given by Jesus or John to reduce the moral responsibility of the opponents in the slightest, but rather it's to indict them. You do not believe me that I'm the Messiah because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and they know who I am and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. Why do some people hear Christ and think, He's not worth following because they don't have ears for him. Why do some people hear Christ and go, he is Lord of my life. He is Lord of this earth. This is who I need to trust in because they have ears for him. But just consider the juxtaposition of these calls. You might say, you might hear that and go, that is the hardest thing ever. That's not right. But the person who hears Jesus and considers him a liar or a lunatic thinks that you're stupid for following him as Lord. No one ever looks to Jesus and go, I want to hear you, but I can't. No, if, if you're not hearing his voice, you don't want to hear his voice. 
And yet our good shepherd, if we want to come to him, we can come to him. If we see him as Lord, he, he accepts all people. So one gladly rejects Christ because they viewed it as absolutely crazy for following him. And yet the other holds fast to Christ because they recognize the beautiful declaration that he will offer. And what does he offer? He offers hope. And I love that even in the midst of this trial, Jesus offers this beautiful picture of hope. Because verse 28 and 29 is, is, is one of these verses and is one of these realities that we, we must put a stake into. And in the difficulties of our world, in the darkest of our days, just remember and hold fast and go, Christ, God is going to hold me fast. Once again, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will be able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. My Father has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Makes me think of Colossians 3. When Paul is describing the same thing. He says this. If then, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above. Not on the things that are on this earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. For Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. I mean, think about the security that that offers to those who believe in Christ. Think about, as you're hearing this, as, as you're a part of this crowd, as, as the Jews are putting Jesus on trial once again, or questioning him and saying, you just need to say this plainly because we are over this. You are messing up our lives, but you're in the corner saying, but I, I, I believe him. And he says, listen, if you're one of my sheep, no one is ever going to be able to snatch them out of my hands. And you're looking around at the crowds going, I, I'm not safe here. I'm now living in, in this, if you're a, a believer, in this body of death and yet alive to God. You're in this, this new reality, this new creation, uh, this already not yet saint and sinner reality. And you're like, this world is not safe. I'm not sure what's going to happen. And you can hear these words from Christ and God and go, but when you're with me, you're never going to perish. This week I heard this illustration, this analogy. Some other pastor gave it when he was preaching the sermon. He said this. A strong father is walking with his young son behind a, beside a dangerous railroad. And there's one of two options of the way that the father could protect his son. The father could say, son, now listen. Here's my hand. Hold tight to my hand. And don't let go, because if you fall on the tracks, you're going to die. And that is a safety measure, because you've got the father, you've got that pillar. The son's got to hold on to his hand. Well, there's a second reality. The father takes his son's hand and he holds onto his hand and he's never going to let go. So often in our Christian lives, we think it's our responsibility to hold God's hand. It's like, have, have you guys heard the analogy of somebody throwing a life raft or, or a, a life preserver out to you who's drowning and the gospel's like this life preserver? No, it's not a life preserver. The reason it's not a life preserver is because when we are found by Christ, we are dead. You can throw a life preserver to a dead guy. It's gonna hit him, bounce off him, float next to him, but he, he doesn't have the power to hold on to it. No, the gospel's not a life preserver that we hang on to. It's a, I don't know, this, the life preserver that's wrapped around us. He jumps in, he, he takes us out of the sea. Here, this reality is when you're with me, I'm never going to let go. So we are secure in Christ, not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because he holds tightly to us. 
And yet in life, we think it's so often flipped. And we are concerned. Have I let go? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It could even be the kicking and screaming child. I've had this moment a couple times. I'm holding on, on to one of my daughter's hands. Trust me, I'm bigger than you. I'm stronger than you. I'm not going to let go. They don't even want me to hold on to them, but I'm holding on to them. And yet I'm going, I'm not letting go. I don't care what you want. I'm not. That's what God does with us. You, you are secure in Christ. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You will never perish. And no one will ever be able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Why? Because I and the Father are one. This verse is beautiful and yet has created quite a bit of turmoil in church history. I and the Father are one. Here's why it's created some turmoil. Here's why this verse has created a stir. Because in the fourth century, a dude by the name of Arius read this verse and grossly misinterpreted it and created heresies upon heresies. Here's what he said this verse means. Arius interpreted this verse that Jesus was one with the Father only in the sense that they agreed upon the same mission. Like in other words, the Father and the Son thought alike and they embraced the same ethic. Arius denied that Jesus was God. He said rather that they did not share the same being of God or the essence of God. They just agreed upon the same agenda as God. Like together they were holding everyone fast, but Jesus wasn't actually God. Jesus was just a man that came and did good things. Frankly, Arius made the exact same mistake that these Jews here are making. They're looking at Jesus and saying, we know you're a man. We don't question that. What we question is, are you actually God? That's what they wanted Jesus to say here because the Messiah meant God. So they're going, "Uh, are you God? But Jesus is going, yeah, I and the Father are one. Why is this a mistake? Well, because I take you back to John 1, 1. The way that this book started, Jesus was with God and was God. For for those of you who are here, and I know not everyone was when we started the Gospel of John, I can't even think of actually how many years now. I think it's been like 18 months, something like that. The very first sermon you know, this series is called Meeting Jesus. And the very first sermon in this series, I was talking about how John, the gospel writer of John, has this friend that he desperately wants us all to meet. And he wants us to meet this friend because this friend changed his life. This man that he walked with for years, this man who saved him out of his stupor, this man who was willing to come to him when other people weren't, weren't willing to come to him. John so loves this man, so loves Jesus, that he writes this gospel so that you and I can meet this friend. Well, this friend of John's is not just a mere regular Joe on the street corner. I mean, he is truly man, just like you and I are truly man man and woman. But here, Jesus is God because he's one with the Father. Yes, they have the same ethic. Yes, they agree upon the same realities and the same truths, but he's with God and he was God. And the Jews got it. Jews got what Jesus was saying. Know how I know that? Look at the very next statement. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. I love that John puts in there again. Like, are we keeping track about how many times we try to stone this joker? Picked up stones to stone him. Look how Jesus responds. I, I, I'm envisioning this like standoff. It's probably not as comical as I might think, but, but Jesus is like, whoa, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on, hold up, hold up. What are you about to throw those stones for? 
Jesus answered, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Which of them are you going to stone me? He's like, okay, so I've done some really good things. Now, which of these good things am I about to die for? But the Jews answer him, no, it's not for your good works. We know that those are good works. That's not a problem. It's not the good works that we're going to stone you. It's for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. He got it. The very the question that started this. Tell us plainly. Stop annoying us. Stop keeping us in suspense. Stop keeping us doubting. Who are you? Tell us if you're the Christ. They got it. Because in the end, they picked up these stones and like, oh, we got it. And just for the sake of time, we're going to finish out the, this chapter and this scene. And we're going to look at Jesus' response. The way that Jesus responds is, frankly, difficult. The answer that there's a lot of written, there's a lot written about it and um, it's, 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 it is a, I say stereotypical, it's a beautiful answer from Jesus where it flips everything on its head and it's like, I didn't see that coming, but it's the exact right way to answer. Just hear how Jesus answers them as they're picking up these stones to stone them. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. This is quoting Psalm 82. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Well, this didn't uh, appease their anger, so again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. The question that was on the table, the thing that concerned them was that Jesus said, I am God because he equated himself appropriately with the Father. I and the Father are one. And they go, wait a second, no man can be God. Well, Jesus' answer uses their own law against them. It is the law of God, but uses their own logic against them because they're like, no man can ever be called a God. And he says, he says actually, if you knew your Bible... And you went to the Psalms, so when it says here law, really just meaning the Old Testament law, which includes the Psalms, you would see that it says, as I said, you are gods. What's happening here? Well, this verse, if you go to Psalm 82, we're not going to for the sake of time, is in reference to human judges that were offered by God to come and to carry out divine functions and divine judgment. And Asaph, as he's writing this psalm, is recounting and writing about the judgment of Israel at the hands of God's judges. And what he's saying is that God has sent us these men, he understands that they're men, these men to act as gods over us, to act as authorities over us, to give us wisdom, to give us, to, to prophesy over us about what we have done wrong or not done wrong. And so Jesus now is arguing from this lesser to greater argumentation. Here's what he's, got, he's saying. He says, okay, you don't like the fact that a man is called God, but I'm going to use your own Bible against you or the Bible against you. He says, so it's okay for in the Old Testament times for people who were mere mortals, these divine judges, or these judges who had, were appointed divinely to be called God, i.e. Psalm 82. But how much more legitimate is it for the one who is God incarnate to be called God? He's saying is, look again at my words indeed. If I am not from God, I could not have done these things. Full stop. So you either have to say I didn't do them, or you have to say that I'm not God. This last trial ends 
essentially with Jews just kind of folding up their arguments, putting it in their lap and saying, okay. And they tried to arrest them, not because they, their, their argumentation was correct, but probably just like, we're done with this. Well, I want to point one thing out about this passage prior to us closing. And it's this. We've talked a lot about works this morning. We've talked a lot about deeds. We've, talked to, we've, we've referenced this idea of what Christ came to do. Our, our position with Christ and with the Father is contingent upon works. It is. We are saved by works. Not our works. Christ's works. And the question that's been surrounding us, you, you've been doing all of these works, so this entire conversation is wrapped around works, but it's a conversation about faith. So the question then goes, how, how do we... How do we handle this conversation with faith and works? You say, in a conversation with faith, the only works that are brought up aren't yours. They're Christ's. Yet so often in our conversations about faith, we like to bring up works. Our works. We like to prove our faith by our works, which is a good thing. But if you do it too soon, it nullifies works. It nullifies faith. The only works that we need to latch onto aren't our own, but are Christ's. So when we bring up the idea of faith, if we can go back to that reformed understanding, that triad that I listened, uh, I listened, listed the hearing and the understanding and the trusting is not in us, is not in our own faith, is not in what we do. It's in Christ's works. The greatest hangup that these Jews had was that they were expecting, they were desiring to work. The reason that Christ didn't make sense to them because they assumed that salvation was by doing. Because in their heart and mind and religion, religion was, a, was something of doing. But Christ came and he revealed that it wasn't about doing, it was about trusting and resting. Because everything that has to be done, there is stuff that has to be done. He does, and not us. They assumed our life was one that would be weighed and measured. I mean, this is why the religious leaders hated Jesus so much, because he was essentially, by the grace that he offered, was releasing everyone to live however they wanted to live. And so they're like, wait, hang on. That's not how this works. We have to be able to judge. We have to be able to weigh and measure how you're doing spiritually. Jesus came and showed that uh, the only person that was going to be weighed and measured, because the only person that was actually going to be, be, would be sufficient, was Christ. That's what this whole thing's been about. He's like, if you want to know who I am, look at my life. And then compare that with your life. And who are you actually going to trust in? You're concerned that you're going to trust in the wrong thing, but you're trusting in yourself. But look what I've done. This life of faith that we live is a tricky one. And it's tricky because we are constantly drawn back to trusting in ourselves. This faith that we live is viewed by people as crazy because the message that we offer is 
trust in somebody else's work and not in your own. And at no point in that trusting do your works add anything to your faith, add anything to your assurance, add anything to your hope. I mean, no part in the, in the, 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 the joy, the gift that, that God, that Jesus declares here is I've given them eternal life and I'll, I will never perish, nor will anyone snatch them out of my hand if they keep going, if they do well, if they have enough, if they check the No, none of that, no. If you look to Christ, it's, you're, you're never going to leave me. I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you. That's the message that Christ is offering to everyone. And some heard it and loved it. My shepherd's calling me. Others heard it and went to pick up stones because that is the worst thing in their minds that you could offer anyone. As we turn our attention towards communion this morning, we get to, once again, look at a table that's not a potluck, but it is a, it's a special offering. And it's Christ's offering to us, or Christ offering to us the, the work that we needed. It's Christ's life having been weighed and measured and been found perfect, had been found satisfying of all that God had to have satisfied. And it's offering to us that we can sit here today and we can receive it, not even in a measure of filling up what is lacking, but in a measure of being reminded that the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection and the hope and the life that we desperately need is found and will always be found in Christ. If you're joining us this morning and you don't know where, what that answer is to whether Christ is a liar, lunatic, or Lord, maybe you're, you're hearing this, maybe you see this and you're like, I still think he's crazy. Maybe you haven't placed your faith in Christ. I would plead with you to do that. You can do that today. You can do that now. You can say, okay, I've, d I've done enough. I've tried enough. I can't do it. But I would also ask that you let these elements pass you by because we don't want them to confuse you as we say here every week because we don't want it to be a work that we do. We don't want you to think, oh, this is what I have to do. This is the work that has to be done. No, all the work, full stop, has been, has been completed in Christ. We take this to remind ourselves of that. So let's pray and we can take this together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come and, and acknowledge our brokenness and our weakness. Thank you that we, we have hope, we have assurance, we have eternal security, not because we're trusting in us holding fast to you. Because we're faithless. We are weak. We doubt. We stray. We make mistakes. We can wake up tomorrow and question. And yet, Lord, we know that you are secure. You are our good Father. That will never leave us nor forsake us. And that we can rest in that. And that even in our darkest moments, you are there. Lord, I, I just, I just want to especially pray for it. If, if anyone's there at this moment, they walked in here to church because they thought, well, I'm just going to do the thing that I, that I need to do. If, if anyone is sitting here and, and, and just needs to have that knowledge renewed in their soul that you will never leave them nor forsake them, Lord, do that.
and then as a body. Help us to surround that person and allow the great cloud of witnesses that are these saints, that are the, the, the family of God to assure them that you are good. Just be with us now as we take this table. In your son's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.